A lot of authors will tell you that they wanted to write from the time they were little kids and then it took them a while to figure out the story they wanted to tell. This story or some version of it was always in the back of my mind and I'm, I'm grateful that after all these years I finally had the chance to put it down. Welcome to FYI, the Public Libraries podcast. I'm Brendan Dowling, Assistant Editor of Public Libraries Online. Today we're talking about some of the best books coming out spring 2019 with our friends from HarperCollins. Later on, I'll chat with author Juliet Graham, whose incredible debut novel, The Seven or Eight Depths of Stella Fortuna, is one of the most eagerly anticipated books of 2019 and was just selected as the spring lead read by the HarperCollins sales team. But first, we have Lainey Mays and Chris Connolly, part of the Library Love Fest team from HarperCollins. You probably know Lainey and Chris from their videos on librarylovefest.com, and they're here to talk to us about some of their favorite books coming up this spring. Lainey and Chris, thanks so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having us. We have some good ones to talk about. The first book I want to let everyone know about is Tiny Americans by Devin Murphy. Devin's debut novel, The Boat Runner, came out in 2017. I had the pleasure of meeting him at ALA Annual in Chicago. He's an incredible guy, very thoughtful, and while The Boat Runner was a World War II novel, his new novel, Tiny Americans, is more kind of along the lines of that Richard Linklater movie, which came out in 2014, where it kind of follows this young boy as he grows into adulthood. And that's very much what Tiny Americans is. It follows a family, three siblings, a father and a mother, who are living in New York State. And the father in particular is very influential on these these siblings as they grow up. He's he teaches them about nature and survival and, and all these valuable life lessons. But the father also deals with alcoholism, and it's something he cannot escape from. And it grows into a, an issue where he can't even really control it, and he leaves the family, leaves these three siblings with their mother, who's an artist. She's struggling. She has some psychological issues of her own. And really it traces these three children as they deal with abandonment and not having their father in their lives. They grow into adults each branch off and become very different people, but they're all influenced by what happened in their childhood and losing their father. And then you actually go back to the father and discover that he is taking control of his addiction and he can't escape the horror of what he did to these children. He wants to reconnect. So it's really sweeping and epic, but it also is just filled with all these intimate moments that Devin really captures with such clarity and heart, but it's not overly sentimental. It's just raw and real and beautifully written. I absolutely love this novel. It's coming March 12th. So again, anyone who loves the film Boyhood, that's very much, uh, this is very much for you. Uh, we love Devin Murphy, so please do check it out. I'm going to talk about The Better Sister by Alifair Burke. Alifair is the New York Times bestselling author of The Wife, which is soon to be adopted, adapted into a major motion picture by Amazon. And actually, Alifair is going to write the screenplay, so that's exciting. Um, her previous novel, The X, was nominated for the Edgar Award for Best Novel, and she also has a series with Mary Higgins Clark, Under Suspicion. That's a crazy background for Alfred Bark. She has all these great accolades. So, but moving on to The Better Sister, which is a standalone, it's a twisty domestic noir, just what Alfred does best. She um, was a former prosecutor, and now she teaches law school, and you can really see it in this book. We follow Chloe, and she is a younger sister um, in a family, and she's getting very successful. She lives in New York. She works in publishing. But when her sister, who is a little reckless, a little flaky sometimes, when her sister's ex-husband and her nephew move into town, she starts getting closer to them, and she ends up marrying her sister's ex-husband. So that's crazy all together right there. Like, you have 
this balance of your sister's ex and your nephew becoming your son, and she's dealing with all of that. But it, years in the future, now the present in this book, she's in the spotlight all the time. On Twitter, she's being kind of harassed for being a contemporary female. But she comes home, and she finds that her husband has been murdered in their beach house in the Hamptons. And as the blame starts to kind of shift onto Ethan, her nephew, but who she regards as a son, um, she kind of has to deal with a trial and her son going through all this. But then, to add on to that, her sister Nikki comes back into town to kind of help out, and secrets start coming out. People start to see that maybe Chloe didn't have the life she said she did. And, you know, you have to deal with family. You know, you don't pick your family, <laughs> and you have to kind of accept them. She learns a lot about the past, and it really does do a good job of talking about the female experience and being successful and being in the media. The tweets are very real. And no matter what she does, even if she's perfect, she's always going to have criticism. And no matter who comes out in her life that is not perfect, if they're men, that doesn't always show on them. So this is really, really, really suspenseful, and I think you're really going to love it. The Better Sister by Alice R. Burke. It comes out in April. Just to back up, Lainey, yeah, I do think Alice has written basically the perfect commercial thriller, but it does have that weight of real social critique, and she, she just aces it. So highly recommend. We love Alice Next book that I'm going to talk about is another huge debut coming in May. I know uh, we'll be hearing from Juliet soon with The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna, which also comes in May. This book is The Confessions of Franny Langton by Sarah Collins. This is very much for the fans of Sarah Waters, Sarah Perry, Jessa Burton. It's a superb kind of historical thriller with a very gothic uh, kind of undertone to it. And it follows Franny, who was raised on this Jamaican sugar plantation, you know, born into slavery. And she's taken under the wing of the plantation owner, who is, he's basically a wannabe scientist. He performs some really horrible experiments uh, in the name of, you know, trying to discover what, how race plays into certain aspects of life. It's dark, but it's told and kind of given levity through Franny, who's brilliant. She knows she's kind of brilliant. She discovers this at an early age. She can read. She can write. She's a super quick thinker. And she grows under this scientist helping him out. But you flash forward, and essentially what happens is Franny goes to Georgian London, so well-written and immersive. You can tell Sarah's studied this heavily. And there she falls under the employ of the scientist and his kind of eccentric French uh, wife. And there is an affair that develops between Franny and his wife. And suddenly, uh, as she continues to develop this relationship, one morning she wakes up and both her master and this woman, this the wife, are found murdered. And Franny stands accused. And so the whole story is kind of Franny recounting her life. She doesn't remember what happened that fateful night when, you know, these murders took place. But she does know about herself and everything she's gone through, and she's convinced she's innocent. She's just such a rich voice, and again, just brilliantly written. And again, as you discover some secrets that come come to the front uh, that kind of explain Franny's life and her position, her dangerous position in this story. So again, great for fans of the Underground Railroad, The Paying Guest, Alias Grace. This is a huge historical thriller, one of my favorite books I've read recently. So I highly recommend you check it out. The Confessions of Franny Langton by Sarah Collins, coming May 21st. What I find really cool about The Confessions of Franny Langton is that Sarah kind of used Jane Eyre as an inspiration. Mm. She grew up loving those 
books and kind of like that gothic literature, but then why couldn't that happen to somebody from the Caribbean who's thrown into London and has these experiences? So I think that's really cool. Yeah. And moving on to The Binding by Bridget Collins. This is a book for book lovers. So Bridget Collins has written YA and some plays. This is her first adult fiction novel. There's so much love for this book on Goodreads, so much love on Edelweiss by librarians, and I think if you're a fan of historical fiction, but, you know, books about books, in the tradition of, like, Jesse Burton, Sarah Waters, this is for you. And in this book, it has a fantasy element, but it is it is historical fiction, too. Um, we meet Emmett Farmer, who is a young man. Working, he works in the fields. He helps his family on their farm, and he gets this letter saying that he has to come be an apprentice at a book bindery, and his family can't afford to say no. So they send him there, and as he starts to understand how these books are bound, there's this magical element where you can take memories and put them in books and take them away from people. In one way, that's good. If you have a bad memory, they can take it away from you, but in one other way, they can take good ones, so the business becomes kind of corrupt. So people kind of are taking memories from people and giving them a little bit of money, but they never get those memories back. And so he kind of sees, you know, what's good and what's bad and what side of this is he on. And his apprentice, the person who's over him, is really teaching him all this. And there's beautiful book binding in the process. Shows the power, the life-changing power of books. And I think the book lovers are going to love it. We just want to cuddle up with it. We actually have a podcast episode with Bridget Collins and her editor here at William Morrow on SoundCloud, where Library Love Fest podcast. It's really great. She told the story behind the idea for this book. She was working for a, a hotline where people called in if they were having issues, psychological issues. And she was talking to people, and she's like, I just want to take their bad memories away. And she was like, well, look. What if I could do that? How would that world go? And kind of the human experience where there is going to be corruption because that's how life is. But also she bound books. She studied the art of it. So she knows a lot about just like physically doing it. And she said that it's the same process from like the beginning of time, which is insane. Hmm. The Binding by Bridget Collins, and that comes out in April of 2019. I'm going to talk about The Gone Dead by Chanel Benz. This is coming June 25th. Chanel's debut short story collection was published by us. It's The Man Who Shot Out My Eye is Dead. Not only a great title, but actually a great short story collection that drew acclaim from George Saunders, of all people, has people really excited for her debut novel. And with The Gone Dead, it takes place kind of in the deep south, in Mississippi in this case, and it follows a young woman who's father passed away and she inherits this kind of shack in rural Mississippi that she hasn't been back to since she was a child. And with this woman, Billy James, she kind of was estranged from her father and she didn't really get a chance to know him that well um, because he died when he was, when she was only four years old and she just now as an adult comes back to this house that she's inherited. What she kind of comes to realize is her father, who is this renowned black poet, he had secrets and also, even more shockingly, even though Billy was present the day that he died, she has no memory of it, and she never returned home. Slowly, bits and pieces of what happened when she was a child come back to her. She discovers that she actually disappeared while her father while her father died, and there was a search for her. She remembers none of this. And so you're kind of thrust into this very, you know, poor, segregated area in the South that has host of social and racial issues. And you follow this brilliant woman who's trying to not only piece together her past, but also deal with some lurking threats that are tethered to that past. 
so it's incredibly atmospheric, lyrical, but again, it takes, you know, it tackles real life social issues. Don't just plug this out, but you know, they're, they're very prevalent there as well. So this is going to be a huge book for us. It's coming again, June 25th. I absolutely love this novel. So it's The Gone Dead by Chanel Benz. So the last one I want to talk about is Old Baggage by Lissa Evans. Lissa is the author of Crooked Heart and Their Finest, and they were both longlisted for the Orange Prize. Their Finest was actually made into a movie, but also Crooked Heart, it's um, in development now for a movie, so that's exciting. And I just have to read this quote by NPR about her last book, uh, Crooked Heart. I try not to say if there's one novel you should read this summer, da-da-da, but... Crooked Heart tempts me to say it, and that's Scott Simon from NPR. And that's not said a lot about books, so huge praise. The new book, Old Baggage, is a prequel, in a way, to Crooked Heart. So you meet Maddie Simpkin, who is at the beginning of Crooked Heart. But in Old Baggage, we kind of go back and learn more about her. She was a pioneer, women's suffrage movement person through all of that, but we meet her now in Pulse. World War One era London, and she's kind of looking back on her life, and she had this kind of eventful, crazy life going through all this, and she was on the forefront of change, and now it's just kind of uneventful. Like, what do you, what do you do? Where do you go from here? So she meets a friend who's kind of on this fascism kick and wants to know all of this stuff, so she decides to form a group where she can turn her focus on a new generation of young minds and young women, and they're called the Amazons, and they get together to, quote, exercise their bodies and their minds. They just ignite this this fire in these young women to stand up again, and I think she connects back to her old past life. It's very funny and heartfelt, and Maddie has to really think about her principles and what she believes and somebody comes in and challenges them. So where are you? Are you on the right side of history or not? And how do you understand that for yourself? There's a lot of love for this book as well. I have quotes from Jojo Moyes and Paula Hawkins. Paula said there are some writers whose books you can't wait to get your hands on. Lisa Evans is one of those. Old Baggage is warm, tender, hilarious, and so clever. And so I please go look up the cover. I just love it. Um, it really, everything the title says, it just kind of encompasses what this book's about. Um, so that's Old Baggage by Lisa Evans, and it's on sale in April. She has such passionate fans, and I think it's just her dialogue. She's so smart and so sharp and observant. Virginia Stanley, the director of library marketing at HarperCollins, uh, you know, library celeb, she absolutely adores Lisa Evans. So... I hope you'll take our word for it, but also we got Virginia backing us up. So <laughs> that's it for our books. Excellent. Thank you so much, Chris and Lainey. One final time, what are those titles again that you just went over? Tiny Americans by Devin Murphy on sale March 12th. We have The Better Sister by Alistair Burke on sale April 16th. The Confessions of Franny Langton by Sarah Collins on sale May 21st. We have The Binding by Bridget Collins on sale April 16th. The Gone Dead by Chanel Benz, on sale June 25th. Old Baggage, and look at that, on sale April 16th. All mine were the same day. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here. It's always great to talk to you all. And you can follow Lainey and Chris on librarylovefest.com or on Twitter, at librarylovefest. The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna introduces readers to a truly unforgettable character, Stella Fortuna, who we first meet as a nearly 100-year-old woman locked in a bitter feud with her sister, who also happens to be her next-door neighbor, in Hartford, Connecticut. From there, our narrator, Stella's granddaughter, traces the remarkable lives of these two women from their girlhood in Calabria, through their immigration to the States, and their eventual marriages. 
Along the way, Stella manages to escape the clutches of death seven, possibly eight, times, ranging from a seemingly mundane encounter with an eggplant to a gruesome battle with hungry pigs. Throughout the story, Stella's fierce love of her family and relentless pursuit of her independence shine through. Grames has created a character who you'll root for, fall in love with, and possibly recognize from your own family. Uh, Juliet Grames, the author of this incredible family saga, is here today to talk to us about her book. Juliet, thank you so much for being here. No, thank you, Brendan. This is really exciting. It's my first interview, so I'm, I'm just honored that I can do an interview for public libraries. This is a story that you've wanted to tell since you were eight. What about these characters in this story have been so compelling to you for so long? A lot of authors will tell you that they wanted to write from the time they were little kids, and then it took them a while to figure out the story they wanted to tell. This story or some version of it was always in the back of my mind, and I'm, I'm grateful that after all these years, I finally had the chance to put it down. But it is basically inspired by my own grandmother. And I come from a very tight-knit Italian family. I spent a lot of time with my grandmother when I was a kid. And I found her very charismatic. And, you know, even though she did have, um, she had an accident that left her partially mentally incapacitated when I was a kid. Even so, I just thought the stories she told were so compelling. And I wanted to, you know, get close to her by trying to understand where she'd come from and to write her story down. And I remember my dad had this Amiga computer, this really old model in the 1980s in um, in my bedroom that I, I remember trying to tap out uh, a story when I was eight years old called An Italian Girl that was a version of my grandmother's life story. And I think it was like a page and a half long. This book is much longer than that. <laughs> um, <in description. laughs> so it's taken many permutations, but I, I have always wanted to write in some form about my grandmother. In many ways, this novel is the love story between Stella and her sister, Tina. It's loosely inspired by the relationship between your grandmother and great aunt. And can you talk about the relationship they had over the course of their lives? So my my grandmother, who passed away this summer at age 98, and her sister, who's alive um, and 97, they were both born in a tiny village in Calabria, which is the toe of the Italian boot, very southernmost part of Italy. The 19-teens and 20s was incredibly poor. They were best friends as kids, always very, very close. They immigrated to America together when they were teenagers. They always slept in the same bed in their tiny house. When they got married, they got married to best friends. They bought two plots of land right next door to each other. They raised their kids together in this uh, kind of one communal backyard and just very, very close, tight-knit family. And then my grandmother actually had a brain trauma when I was five years old, and she received a life-saving lobotomy, which let us have her for another 30 years, um, for which I'm grateful. But it also changed her brain and her personality. And when she woke up from her coma, she wouldn't speak to her sister anymore. For the first 70 years of their lives, they were best friends and inseparable. And then all of a sudden, there was this shock to the family where these two matriarchs, they could never be in the same room again. It really struck me very powerfully. I didn't kind of realize that everyone didn't have a kind of grandma drama this way. I still wanted to try to understand it. And um, I love, I'm very close to my aunt. Obviously, I loved my grandmother very much. And it's, you know, heartbreaking that they couldn't, in their old age, after their husbands passed away, you know, be there for each other. Um, I just found this loneliness really compelling. And yeah, the Stella Fortuna is a novel. It's it's fictional. The thing is that my my grandmother, um, who I've, I've tried so hard to understand, 
by, you know, collecting her stories, collecting stories people remember about her. She did have this brain trauma that changed her personality and that made it impossible to know her point of view or uh, what she was thinking or why she did what she did. So in the end, I had to make that all up. So Stella is a fictional character who has, the you know, the beginning of her life starts in the same place that my grandmother's life started. And the eight deaths that Stella almost has during the course of the novel, those all actually happened to my grandmother in some form or another. Other than that, the book is invented because it is, you know, told from Stella's point of view. And I'll never know exactly what my grandmother thought. I'm, I'm too young to remember what her, I was too young when she had the accident. Um, to remember what her personality was like before. To get back to the sisters, the relationship between the sisters, I, I have a sister and I, I love her. She's, she's one of my best friends. And the idea of having that relationship throughout our whole lives and have it suddenly fall apart in our old age when we need each other most or, or when, you know, when things are getting hard, um, I just think is totally heartbreaking. You understand where they're coming from, which makes, I think, the risk even more heartbreaking. And the first third of the book immerses you in the day-to-day life of 1920s and uh, 1930s Calabria with everything from family sleeping arrangements to the intricacies of silkworm farming. What was your research process like? I love research. I'm, I'm a research mm-hmm. nut. I, I research things that I have no reason to research. But in this case, I will say that the most important resource in reconstructing uh, what this part of the world was like at this time were interviews. Luckily, in the Italian South, People live a very, very long time. I have this theory that it's because everyone goes to church at least once a week, but many people go every day, and the church is always at the top of the hill. So I think people have very good cardiac health because they're like basically hiking up a mountain every day to go to church. So I interviewed a lot of nonagenarians, both here in the States. I took a leave of absence from work, and I went and I lived in my grandmother's village, which is called Yevoli, for a while in the winter of 2015, and I had the chance to interview a lot of people there. It's fascinating how much people remember about this time, about the 20s and 30s, and collecting their stories and compiling them. I tried to work in as many different people's recollections as I could into the book, because I think oral history is really important, and you definitely get stuff that you don't see in books that sometimes it's hard to believe. You're like, can this really be true? And and I think, you know, historians have written written histories will kind of, you know, they'll pull punches there. They'll be afraid to put some of the more um, hard-to-believe stuff into into writing if they can't support it with uh, facts. But I'm telling you, the stories that come out of these tiny villages are just uh, mind-bending and wonderful. Aside from interviews, local town halls in Italy and also the parochial records, like the, the local churches, are incredibly well kept. You know, if you're interested in anything about, if you're trying to find an Italian ancestor or you want to learn more about an Italian village, I do encourage you to contact the local uh, town hall or the municipio. It's called in Italian, and they will have birth and death records, they'll have marriage records, they'll have all kinds of stuff. In the case of Yevoli, they date back to 1826. The registrar officer was very generous with her time as well, and I, I made many trips down to the Yevoli town hall to uh, to pull records. And the churches also keep really comprehensive records, including property records. And finally, I, I visited a lot of kind of mini museums. There's a heritage silk museum in Calabria about Calabria silkworm farming, which was a huge industry before World War II that I think people have largely forgotten about. But it was a women's industry. It was something women could do at home while their men were um, either away at war or had emigrated all over the world to try to find work in other places. Women could raise silkworms in their houses and then do silk weaving and and spinning, and um, it became a vital source of income. There's lots 
lots of cool little stuff like that in villages all over Italy, and I'm grateful that I had this chance to take this research trip. And the silkworm farming was something that your own grandmother and great-aunt did when they were little girls, right? After my grandmother had her accident, she was the one who told the story about silkworm farming. And um, my mother, her daughter, had never heard it before. And she thought, you know, she thought she was confused. She's like, no, ma, silkworms are from China. Like, they're not from Italy. And um, and sure enough, when she went and asked my, my great aunt, my aunt was like, yeah, no, we, we totally raised silkworms when we were kids. This was, you know, what we did every summer. For me, that was a really valuable learning moment about memory and how kind of families do bury some stories and that sometimes it kind of takes throwing a wrench into the works to to drag up these truths. So much of their family story is about the secrets that different members are keeping. And um, at one point, the narrator says, only certain secrets are for keeping. I admit I haven't been able to quite figure out the difference between the two. Maybe that's why I'm writing this. And for you, what was it like writing a book where the family history is filled with such a range of secrets from mundane things to, to really truly horrible occurrences. I think most families have these kinds of secrets on both levels. I definitely enjoyed the process of, of digging in here and trying to figure out in this fictional family why certain things got covered up and why certain lies were told uh, to kind of patch things over. I don't think the fictional Fortuna family is the only family that has these kinds of um, multiple layers. I think most of our families, we have things that we're ashamed of. We have things that we've lied about just because it's fun to tell stories a certain way. And the years go by, the permutations evolve, and, and we sometimes step away from the core fact as it was. They become legend and myth, and, and sometimes that's great. And sometimes it could really use some reexamination. That line that you pick to read is a really important one to me about this book and, and why I think all of us should look at our family histories and what we can learn from them. The reader really gets to admire her just in terms of how she's willing to take this unblinking look at every aspect of her family's history. The narrator also says early in the book, I hope the fruits of my obsession will be the disinterment of Stella Fortuna, an explication of her too strange life and a restoration of her besmirched good name. What do you hope readers will come away with after after reading your novel? Writers sit in the dark alone and they're typing away and they never think anyone's going to read their book. And it's a privilege for the book to be read at all. But for me, the most rewarding thing by far is when people start telling me about their grandmothers. And I've heard about a lot of grandmothers now. And I, I just think one thing that's really cool is I, I know my grandmother was misunderstood. The last 30 years of her life overshadowed the first 70 years because of this traumatic brain injury that she had. And, and caring for her became a chore um, that really taxed the family. And, you know, we we loved her and, and we took care of her and didn't begrudge her that. But it, the memories of her youth were eroded and they disappeared. And the more I researched about my grandmother, the more I thought she was this incredibly extraordinary woman and not necessarily the um, cranky or difficult person that she was remembered as later in life. These are the things about that generation, that, that being a woman was really hard and it, it was physically hard, it was psychologically hard, like the, the levels of trauma that a woman had to endure, the things she was just expected to do to survive could really take a physical or mental psychological toll. And these women who gave us life deserve our forgiveness and they deserve our understanding and they do deserve 
for us to realize what they went through to, to bring us here, you know, and we can't judge them, hold them to modern standards. I'm so grateful that people are looking at the, the quote unquote difficult women in their past and, and are remembering their love for them and, uh, and maybe examining what their real stories were. It's such a compassionate look at both of the women. Julia, I want to wrap up by asking, what role has the public library played in your life? Brendan, I bet you've never had an author tell you before that they were a very awkward child and that their only friends were books, right? And that they spent a lot of time at their local library because it was a safe place for them. The public library was not only just right down the street from me, it was the bus stop where I was dropped off after school. So when I was having a bad day uh, or didn't have any friends to play with, I would go there and the librarians were always nice to me and helped me pick out books that would challenge me. And it was always a safe place you know, close home. And I just, I wish everyone could kind of have that environment. Thank you so much for being here today. The book is so engrossing. And I think readers are really going to love not only reading it, but also talking about it and, and analyzing it. The book is called The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna, and it comes out May 7th, 2019. Thank you again to our guests today. Once again, that was Lainey Mays and Chris Connolly from Library Love Fest. And again, you can follow them on Twitter at Library Love Fest. And be sure to check out their fantastic podcast on SoundCloud. Just search for Library Love Fest. And, of course, Juliet Graham, whose book, The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna, comes out this May. Thank you again for listening to FYI. This is Brennan Dowling signing off.